Welcome back, imposters, to another episode of the You're Not Qualified podcast. My name is Courtney Heater, and I have a very special conversation for you today. I don't know many people who don't love dogs. I guess like my mom doesn't really love dogs, but even she now lets the family lab sleep in her bedroom, which was far stretches from how it was when I was growing up. And rescue dogs especially have stolen the hearts of many with their larger-than-life personalities and all-too-often very emotional and difficult pasts. You boys ain't nothing but hound dogs, crying all the time. In 2018, pet adoptions in King County, Washington alone were up 20% from the former year. And as many are aware from the new furry friends joining our coworkers on Zoom calls, adoptions haven't slowed down and in fact really picked up the pace tremendously in the pandemic as we're all isolating and lonely. Though most of those dogs being adopted out have had little to no past training, and the transition to a new home can be very difficult for everybody involved, including the humans and the pets. In fact, lack of training is the number one reason dogs are even abandoned in the first place. Dylan Atkinson wanted to do something about that statistic. And Dylan has a heart of gold for these animals and was told that he wasn't qualified to help these animals in the ways that he wanted to. But oh my God, is he proving them wrong? So go grab your fur friend who is likely marinating on your couch right now and let's dive in to this tremendous human's story. Let's go. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are joined by Dylan Atkinson. He is a former MMA trainer and founder of Rough World Training, a for-profit organization out of Vancouver, Washington, that rescues and trains dogs. So he started the organization when he was just 26 years old and is approaching the growth of his business in a very unique way that I can't wait to get into. Dylan, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Actually, uh, a little amendment. I went the nonprofit route. And then as I was going through the route and learning all of the laws that I would have to abide by for being a nonprofit rescue, I decided mm -hmm. that was not actually the route that I was going to do. So I'm uh, technically a for-profit rescue, although 100% of my uh, proceeds do go towards training abandoned dogs. Oh, okay. So is that just a like a tax different filing status to not have yeah. okay yeah so if you're a if you're a nonprofit rescue you essentially have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops that make the rescuing process very black and white to where if you don't in in certain parts and many parts of the the country if you don't own a home have a five foot fence have over a five thousand square foot yard you just can't get a dog like it doesn't matter how much effort you're willing to put into making this dog's life better they they would rather kill that dog and get $400 from the government than let that dog live and potentially have some sort of liability because you didn't actually meet the requirements. But if you're a for-profit, you're a private business and I can take every person into account and go, okay, this is the guy, this is how you're going to succeed. We need to make sure you have all these skills. We need to make sure this is that this is what the dog needs. And I can work with that person on a long-term basis and give a person that rents a house, rents an apartment, but would be a great dog parent, the opportunity to actually rescue because that person is going to go buy a puppy or go find a rehoming app on Facebook or whatever, and just do it on their own anyway, mm -hmm. because it's not that they can't get a dog. It's that a rescue can't have the liability of working with them because they essentially are owned by the government. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. But a hundred percent of your profits are going back to the benefit of the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I pay okay. myself through the effort of training a dog and all hundred percent of my proceeds go towards finding a dog, training him, taking care of him and rehoming them. Gotcha. That's a really interesting aspect of nonprofits that I did not know about. Okay. Yeah, I, I had no idea until I freaking paid to get one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, wait a second, read the fine print. Yeah. That's the moral of that story. 
I'm just going to plug this right up top here. So this whole conversation is from the perspective of somebody who has seen the really dark side of kill shelters and what happens to dogs that are not trained, dogs that are deemed maybe untrainable, and dogs that are going through a cycle of being homeless and then going to the shelter, getting adopted out, family decides that they're not the right fit because they're not trained, they bring them back to the shelter and it's a cycle for the dog. Maybe they get adopted out again, maybe the shelter puts them down, deeming them adoptable because they're not trained. This is Dylan's goal is to stop that cycle because he wants to train these dogs that are not trained and save them from this life going back and forth and save them from the life of getting killed because they aren't trained. So it's a bit of a trigger warning here up top that we do talk about this, but I really believe that this is a very important conversation and a really important perspective to see, especially in the world we live in now where there's tons of adoptions out there. And just maybe be aware that this is what's happening to these dogs. So training is even more important than maybe a lot of us even realize. I encourage you to stick around. Totally understand if you want to skip this episode because of this. Won't be offended, but it's it's really worth it if you do stick around. The typical qualifications then, we all know what a rescue is. And oftentimes it From my perspective, it either comes in the form of foster homes or the shelter, but what's the typical path for those in the dog rescue industry and the dog training industry? The route that I went, I've essentially blacklisted is like a heavy word, but like I've had more people that own rescues and work with shelters cuss me out than any other type of people in my life because of the route that I went, because I went, I'm not going to be a nonprofit because it doesn't make sense to go this route that I just explained. And they're like, we don't work with people that are nonprofits. People that are for profit are evil. And I'm like, not for profit. I'm just I don't see, think it makes sense to pay the government thousands of dollars <laughs> instead of taking that money and training these dogs, because you guys can't afford to train them because you have to jump through all these hoops. You have all this liability. You have a lot smaller pool of people that you can pull from. So I see all of these mistakes and I'm not willing to do them because this is my life goal. I want to actually make a change. And I think that the change that needs to be made in the rescue industry is we're not training these dogs. We're putting them in boxes and it doesn't matter if you're in kill shelter or a non-kill shelter that dog that was abandoned because it had social issues then it didn't wasn't trained properly to live in society that dog still needs to learn how to live in society in order to succeed Mm -hmm. so he needs a home he needs a family he needs somebody to teach him and that's why they're there and that's the quickest way that you're going to get them out is to show like hey this dog it was doing this it was doing this put 80 hours of work into that dog put them on the internet and that dog is going to find somebody that wants them because a one-year-old dog with skills is a 10 to $30,000 dog. When you go into the dog training industry and you sell a dog, but that dog is worthless and abandoned to, if they were not brought up successfully and it literally takes 80 hours to, to make that difference in a dog. Oh man. And that could save their life. Cause it's probably yeah. a vicious cycle. Cause if they adopt a not trained dog, it's probably the likelihood of that dog being brought back to the shelter or put down is astronomically higher. Yeah. And that's the cycle is people know that's probably the cycle. So they'll go, I don't want to get a broken dog from the shelter. Mm-hmm. That is, I want to take a puppy and then I want that puppy to, I'll raise that puppy and I'll do it correctly. And that puppy will be great. And then the reality situation is there's a percentage of dogs that the path of their life is that person gets a puppy. They think that they're going to they they have the skill and effort to put into that puppy because they're motivated at that time. It's actually a nine month process to train that dog. They get Mm -hmm. bored of it. They get frustrated. They have their own mental things going on. And at nine months, 10 months, 14 months, they go, this dog's fucking broken. Can I cuss? Yeah, of course. I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good. 
okay, this dog's broken. I, I can't deal with it. I have my own things going on in their life. And this dog was meant to be a positive impact in my life. And now yep. it's a burden. I don't want to deal with them. So then that dog goes and trained. It's like 48%, I think, of dogs that are euthanized in America are between nine months and 24 months. They're considered adolescent, untrained dogs. Oh my God. That is, I don't know what the percentage, because there's no way to tell percentage Mm -hmm. of puppies rescued that their life cycle is by the time they're 14 months or whatever, they're being euthanized because somebody got a puppy. They didn't know they didn't have any intention or they had the intention, but didn't follow through with training it properly. They said, it's not my problem, abandoned it. And then that dog got killed. And those are the, that's what I do is I find Mm -hmm. those dogs and I go, Hey, look, they're not broken. They just don't know how to live in society. And I'm going to teach them how to live in society. Yeah. God, that's noble. Those poor dogs. Do you know what the, the next group, if it's 48% of adolescents, you know what the next biggest it's elder elders? Oh. Yeah. Dogs that are above, I think seven or eight years old that they, people want the puppies. So those dogs, there's a percentage of rescues that like specialize in that. Hey, I'm going to take this dog and I'm going to find it. somebody that's going to have it. But even the, even in that aspect, they're usually looking at like 13 year old dogs. So that eight to 13 is nobody cares about thing. <laughs> very God, small that's so sad. Yeah. Cause they don't want the financial liabilities mm. and they're not as active anymore. That. And there's a, and there's a percentage of people that love that sort of dog <laughs> and they are, but they're the minority. And actually, if you look up like different rescue and different like so people that are like up on social media the niche the pop most popular niche in rescue industry as far as social media goes is hey look at me i rescued this dog that's about to die and i'm going to give it its good last few years or last year or whatever and then i saw that as okay there are people that are taking care of these dogs but if you look up like adolescent abandoned dogs look, I'm taking care of and fixing these and giving them the shot at life oh. that, that they're having. There's, you can't find anything on the internet for that. So I, that's what I saw as that's what I need to do. I need to take this, this corner because people are taking care of those dogs to the best of their ability. Cause there's still many of them that are not getting that opportunity, but there are many more of the adolescents. Yeah. So you were at least 26 years old. Is that right? When you discovered that you wanted to do that? So I retired, not like loosely retired as an MMA fighter and an mm-hmm. MMA coach. I did that for eight years. It was uh, 27 is when mm-hmm. I, is when I retired from coaching. 26 is when I sat down and was like, okay, I have four years to like be the person that I want to be at 30. And I, 26 is the last year in my mind that you can be like, okay, am I joining the army or what? Because that's the ticket to, I'm a very, I came from very low poverty and I see the military as your free ticket to middle-class. Anybody that wants to go to middle-class status, that's in any way responsible with money. You work for the, you work for the military for four to six years, mm. depending on your thing. And you're going to come out with 50 to $80,000 and a position in life that you can, you have so many benefits as it, that as long as you don't get any sort of big trauma or anything, then you can set yourself up for success. And I always knew that was my route. That was a possible route. And at 26, I was, am I going to do that and get into this middle-class status, have them have, have enough money and support from the world that I can buy my own property and get my own shelter when I'm 30, 31, or am I going to go the route of, okay, it's all on me. I have to figure out how to create a business, how to make cash flow, how to get people supporting me and go that route. But I always knew that as soon as I was done with MMA, my next step was to open up a shelter. And I just didn't know how I was going to do it until 26, 27, when I started making a plan. Wow. What was the influential push? We did talk a little bit off recording of you needed to drop your dog off at the shelter and your parents basically abandoning both of you, both you and your dog. Was that really what started your love for 
animals seeing a shelter so young or what was it? My first ever memory was at four years old getting my first dog. Like I literally don't. That's my first memory is I had a Siberian Husky. He was three years old. His name was Halen. And that dog was my companion. I don't remember before him. He took care of me. Youth wasn't youth wasn't amazing. When I was a kid, we lived in a very deep country. And my uh, stepdad at the time was not the brightest dude and thought burning all of the burn piles on this property that he just bought that had been there for 20 years was like a good idea. So we got infested with rats. And I lived in this house that was infested with rats, like not little rats, like bigger than a huge- Oh, like the uh, sewer rats? Yeah. Like these things lived in burn piles that were all over this 20 acre property for, I don't know how long, but there was much, much more of them than there were of us. And we burned all their homes down. So they came and lived with us. And I was the, I- had Halen. He stayed with me wherever I was and he slept in my bed. And I literally was protected by this dog Mm -hmm. for, for two years of my life to where like, I literally had to like my brother and sister freaking, they got their like pets killed and they had to deal with all these rats. And I had my dog that would protect me in that situation. And at four, five, six, seven years old, that was a big deal uh, to me. And I kind of saw that like we're partners and I take care of you. I play with you. I interact with you. I make you happy and you protect me. One of the first things that I grew up in kindergarten, first grade, second grade dealing with. And then that dog was parents fought, broke up, stepdad took dog, stepdad a few months later lets me know that dog died because he got out and ran away and couldn't get him back. And I have had probably eight dogs because my parents were like that. They were like, they were okay with giving dogs away, taking other people's dogs Mm -hmm. in when they were done with it because they had their life, blah, 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 blow ups every six months to a year and a half. Mm -hmm. They would get, would get rid of a dog and then they would get me a new dog sort of thing. So I always had it. That was my companion, but my parents would treat them like Pokemon cards sort of thing. And that was a big deal to me. The 2008 housing market crash happened. My parents were, my parents at the time were very successful people owning a construction company business. And about within two, three months of the housing market crash, they became like heavy alcoholics to where they turned very abusive. There were, they would get joy out of like certain, not graphic sort of uh, stuff, but like essentially mental and physical torture. And one of the things that my parents did was take my dog when I was at, when I was at school and send her to the shelter because who the fuck cares? She's just a stupid dog, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to deal with her. It's another mouth to feed. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the tagline that, that my mom actually got. It was really odd. She just came up with this tagline was like, why would I buy you food? You're just going to eat it anyway. And oh my God. she got, she got serious about it to where me and my family, my, we had five siblings and stuff would, we lived in like middle of nowhere and we would have to walk about three hours to the nearest store with backpacks and duffel bags and fill them up and run out of the store and walk the three hours home. Mm-hmm. And then when they abandoned my dog to the shelter, I was like, yeah, I'm fucking done. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just stopped going home. I wasn't getting fed. Living in the woods was not that bad to me. Oh, I yeah. Just, yeah. You I can <laughs> probably get more reliable food, which is really ironic. I am a passive death to bandit crooked words with a witless word. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, I'm not walking. But the only reason I was coming back was because my dog was there. Yeah. And they, yeah, when they got rid of my dog, I was like, all right, I have literally no reason to, to be here anymore. And I just started living in the woods. And luckily in 2008, also there was a really bad storm. It was like the 50 year storm. And I was just like walking around neighborhoods cause he couldn't sleep cause it was so cold. Mm-hmm. And uh, a freaking person that was two years younger than me saw me and was like, Hey, what's up? Blah, blah, blah. You want to go sledding? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And he, I must've looked real fucking homeless because his parents saw me and they were like, what's up with this kid? And he told him. And the next day I was wandering around the neighborhood again. He found me and his parents freaking grabbed me and was like, Hey, 
what's your deal? And they were like, I was like, this is my deal. This is everything I own. I'm blah, blah, blah. I didn't really know. I thought my life was normal. Like I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, people go through hard times and like, it's life. I'm just going through my shit. And yeah. so I so I, I told everybody totally unabridged all my stuff. And they were like, okay, literally this family that I never met before was like, okay, we're going out of town for a few days. If you can find one of your friends to like, be like, Hey, I found a place to live. Can I stay here for a week? We'll take you in. And I had this family take me in that I didn't know at all. And they gave me the skills that I needed to succeed and graduate high school and keep me a part of the wrestling team, which was pretty much the only thing I identified as Mm -hmm. at that time. And that's where I came from. I was, I've had the, nobody took care of me. Nobody gave me social skills. Nobody gave me the skills that needed to succeed. I was abandoned in my adolescence. I was taken in by a family that had no business taking me in. And I needed that at that time in my life. And that's how I see these dogs is Mm -hmm. they need that person. And dogs are the one thing cats to a certain extent, but cats are much more independent, but they're the one species that human beings have gone. Like you live in our society and that's our responsibility. Like We need to teach them how to live in our society the best way that they can. We're the ones breeding them. We're the ones killing them. We're the ones taking them into our Domesticating the shit out of them. Yep. It's not business. It's a a soul. And in order to give back to the universe for what it's given me to have the skills and everything to take care of myself, I feel like it's my responsibility to do what I can for these dogs. Are you still in touch with that family? Obviously. Yeah. They're like your family. Yeah. Like I, it really, luckily the family that I, the family that I got is the people like me, like everybody Mm -hmm. that was like me ended up finding this family to where I've got freaking 10 brothers and sisters that are all people that have no holiday to go to. And we all come together and now they all have kids. So now I've got freaking little nieces and nephews that I have to buy Christmas presents for and everything. And so it was really cool. I'd never met my father. My mother was, you know, an abusive drug addict. And I still have that, that family and holiday stuff to go back to. So I'm really lucky about that. Yeah. Because they took a chance on you and that's what you're doing for all of these dogs. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. That's amazing. I'm super thankful for them. Jeez, people like that. It's amazing that they exist. It's angels in a way, angels on earth in a way, if you're at all religious, but it's just, yeah, that's really incredible. So Halen then just like super side note, was that named after Van Halen? I have no idea. I was, okay. four, years- <laughs> I was four years old when I got that. Like, oh, I, I was like liking Van Halen. That would be <laughs> pretty darn cool. I like that. I've never even thought of that before. I have never heard that name before. That's <laughs> the only word. It's the only time I've ever heard that word. Is it Van Halen? <laughs> yeah, me too. It's super unique name. I feel like I have to, because I've told stories about him and everything. And then, so I'll say Halen in the thing and I have to be like, it's a dog's name. Are they hailing a cab? Are they yeah. <laughs> <laughs> screaming? Then your approach to all of these dogs is obviously you're coming in with love. You're coming in with the rehabilitation aspect. It's, it sounds like that concept. Is that really far removed from their traditional rescue idea? They don't typically train dogs, do they? Select few will put the effort into, but everyone in the two States that I go of, I've called every single rescue before I opened up my own. I was like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to train rescues. I'm going to go and go into all these places and they're going to love me. And they didn't because they essentially assumed that I was like a money grubbing person that was trying to manipulate them or something. They thought the worst of me, but I was like, okay, what do you guys do for your dogs? And they were like, our dog, our job isn't to train them. Our dog job is to keep them alive. And I thought it didn't make sense. Yeah. They're tied together. (laughs) Yeah. Like your, that dog is wanted if he has the skills to be a social dog. So why don't we make him a social dog that can be a positive impact on somebody's life instead of a detriment, at least initially, because the person that has the skills and the effort that's going to put into that dog 
is probably going to just go buy a thousand dollar dog in the reality of the situation that we live. There's very small percentage of people that are compassionate enough to do the whole thing and have the effort. So the dogs that need the help that are working dogs that are a year old, they just don't get the attention. And a lot of them will be in a shelter for a year. If it's a no kill shelter, they'll pass them around. And I've called every single one that will talk to me, had conversations with them and it's very black and white. They see it as a, they see it as a product, as a business. They're not thinking about these things as souls. They're thinking of it as black and white. Can you fill out this paperwork, qualify, jump through our hoops, and then we'll give you one of our dogs. And if a dog doesn't meet the requirements. If they're a kill shelter, they'll kill them. If they're not kill shelter and they've had this dog for too long, some of them, not all of them, but some of them will just give that dog to a kill shelter to say that they're not a kill shelter and still get rid of that dog. Oh my God. What's the alternative to that though? If they can't adopt the dog out, letting them sit in a box for years. And yeah, that's what I see. They'll have, they're completely dependent on trainers being willing to go and do it for free. And then trainers go, okay, I'm going to, I'll do this a little bit, but they're going to spend 30, 45 minutes with a dog. Maybe if they have, if they're going to a big place, they're going to spend 20 minutes with a dog once a week. And that's not what a dog needs that Mm -hmm. you're just putting, you're putting a bandaid on a freaking gunshot wound. Like these dogs need 80 to hundred hours. They need social skills. They need to be able to get out of the shelter and go, Hey, this is a public setting. And then I got to teach you how to act in this public setting because you're, that's what you is required for you to succeed in society. Hey, you need to go into public. You need to act appropriately. I need to know that you're not going to lunge, bite, jump, be a liability for me, be embarrassing for me. You, you had never been here. Mm-hmm. So I teach you the skills. I teach you a line of communication. And then I put you in situations to where I give, I communicate with you. And then you understand, oh, that's how I have to be here. And dogs are crazy smart. I can take a dog into 20 different settings, give them 20 different rules for those settings. And as long as I rep it out and clearly communicate those terms with a good foundation initially, that dog will know the difference between all 20 of those settings. Uh, Yeah. And we're just not doing it. It takes 80 to hundred hours, depending on the dog and rescues aren't doing it. What the, what rescues are willing to do is very minimal. They're just hoping that rescues or that trainers want the social media attention enough to go in there, take 20 of their dog, take four of their dogs, work with them for 20 minutes each, and then give them back and be like, look, I work with dogs, work with me on, work with me on social media, but we're not taking, we're not taking the problem and going, how do we solve this problem? And when I decided that, yes, I'm going to try and live every dream and goal that I have, I first went with, uh, with MMA and I tried my absolute best at it. And now I'm going into the dog training and I need to do it the way that I think it's correct. Not the way that the template is because while I appreciate the people that are going the route, I think moving forward, we need free thinkers that are willing to make their own decisions and look at what has been and say, how can we do it better? Not... And come from a problem solving mentality, right? You need to understand the root cause and then you need to fix it from the root cause. You can't, as you said, just put band-aids on bullet wounds. That's not going to get these dogs adoptable. It's so maddening. Yeah. (laughs) That group of the rescue people, then they're obviously looking at you. That's the crazy way to do it. He's, this is not what we want to do. So who are your people then? There's got to be people out there that are doing training and rescue and rehabilitation in the same way as you are. Have you found them? I have honestly not found one. Yeah. I've there's rescues that are small enough to be in a home. And those people are like working with the dogs because in order to live with a dog in the home, then they're going to do it. But there's nobody that I've found that's, Hey, how about we train these dogs and show what we can do? It's, Hey, we foster dogs. We don't put them in shelters. Does anybody want these dogs? There's nobody that's going, Hey, we take dogs that are that untrained dog that people are like, I can't handle him. We're going and we're look at how it used to be. Look at how he is now. There's nobody that I have found that's doing that. And it's pretty shocking. Yeah, it is really shocking. And what I've came to the conclusion of, which I, it's really hard because there's actually not a lot of statistics in the dog training industry besides like 
how many dogs were abandoned versus how many dogs were killed. That's pretty much the only number that they care about. You can't find the more dynamic numbers when you go and research it. But what I assume is that in order to be a nonprofit, you have to jump through a lot of hoops in order to maintain that nonprofit status as a uh, rescue. And the rescue industry has became very, in my opinion, elitist when it comes to that, because they go black and white. Do you own your home? No, you can't yeah. have one of my, you can't have Both one of my dogs. Crazy. Yep. And then do you have a fence the, yard? <laughs> yeah. Is it six feet or is it five yeah. and a half feet? Yeah. If you Google adopt, don't shop, you'll find 10 videos for this is why adopt, don't shop doesn't work. I tried mm -hmm. this route and I got told I wasn't a good enough person to own a dog. So I went out and gotten puppy and now I'm going to treat this puppy the best that I can. Cause I'm not a bad person. I just don't own my freaking house yet. And it's the same sort of thing when they're willing, when they're willing to work with rescues, Re rescue will all apply to try and work with rescues and they will go, okay, what's your nonprofit number? And I'll be like, I don't have one. I'm for profit. And they're like, we think that you're a bad person because you do this. We also see that you're not actively against uh, dog parks. And we think that anybody that's not actively against dog parks is a bad person. So <laughs> we're not going to work with you. And it's like, I'm saying it like that. That's because I've gotten a lot worse insults. What's the thing with dog <laughs> parks? So this is the active saying in both the dog training industry and the rescue industry is if you go to a dog park, you're a not very bright person because you're letting other people's dogs dictate whether your dog is safe or not. But there, there are lots of people, hundreds of people. They go to dog park, every dog park, every single day. I've never gone to a dog park that doesn't have a shit ton of people. Yeah. Very um, successfully even at that. Yeah. And I think that if you got a chihuahua or like a, you know, 10 pound dog and you're going to a dog park, you're crazy. You're just rolling dice. I personally don't take dogs that, that I think can't take a bite because, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. because I can't deal with that. I can't deal with the chance of that dog being attacked, hurt and dead. Mm -hmm. A dog, a dogs are um, amazingly tough creatures and they don't even care if they get bit some of them mm -hmm. in that aspect with that thought process and having the skills to where I know the mentality and my dog doesn't want to be aggressive. He wants to play. He wants to have fun. He's not going to, you know, do X, Y, Z. If I can make the decision to know what my dog's triggers are and how much of a risk they are going to be at the park. If they're like, my dog loves other dogs. They want to interact. They want to play and they don't, they need to get their energy out. Oh yeah. Go to the dog park. Oh man. yeah. They will run rampant like yeah. until they and, can't walk. Yeah. And people say where else in society, in the uh, world do, you know, dogs with different packs and, or like any animal go and interact and play with another pack. It doesn't happen. And it's mm -hmm. okay. But these are domesticated dogs. They're not freaking tigers out here trying to play. Like <laughs> these are dogs. They're, this is their life. We made this happen. And Lots of dog trainers and lots of rescues will demonize those people. And then those people are like, now I, you're just making me feel bad about myself because I'm going to go to the dog park anyway. He probably loves it. They get yeah. stoked when they drive into the, the yeah, driveway. It's their, yeah, It's their absolute life. And you got to know your dog's triggers and you got to be responsible mm -hmm. for your dog. And then you got to go, okay, how do I deal with this situation if it does occur? If I can go into a dog park and say, I can handle any situation that happens right here, then yeah, I'm going to go and enjoy myself and I'm going to promote that. And I'm going to high five everybody that can, that's in that same situation that is responsible enough and wants their dog to be happy and gets joy out of taking their dog to the dog park. I'm not going to demonize them. I'm not going to say that I'm unwilling to work with them because of the lifestyle that they live. No, we're going to say, this is a lifestyle you want to live. You can live whatever life you want. Mm -hmm. I'm going to help you succeed in the lifestyle that you want. And I think that if enough people took that mentality, instead of just writing people off as black and white. Oh, you don't stand. You don't have the same thoughts and beliefs as me. I'm not associating myself or supporting you. And actually I'll actively try and, you know, harm what you're doing, whether you, it's yeah. good or not. And so, it's insane because you are having tangible, positive influence on dogs lives. And if people just actually can't see that, that's just can't see it, then they're never going to be on your bandwagon. They're just never going to get it. They want to dislike you. Yeah, that's, I think it's a, I think it's an identifying sort of thing mm -hmm. uh, to where it's, you're challenging my view of the world. And yeah. if your view of the world can be correct, 
then maybe my view, like I didn't have to live it like this. And what if I didn't want to live it like this, but I thought I had to live it like this. And that's scary for me, like Mm -hmm. facing that reality of like, maybe society tricked you and you not being able to face that you were tricked and maybe you wanted to change, but you didn't. And now it's too late because you've already committed so much time into this life that you've created that making those changes would make you feel foolish and you can't face that. That's And they don't want other people to see that they changed Yeah, after so much dedication to one thing. And I do need to say that the dog parks are, in my view, such a good outlet for those owners that just need like the capital, like bold letter need to have their dog off leash because in Washington, probably in Oregon too, down like Vancouver area, all of the hiking trails, there are so many owners with their dogs off leash in the wilderness areas. And I see and hear of way more issues with dogs off leash on hiking trails than I ever do in a dog park. It's, it's the safe space because there's people watching them, but your dog can so quickly get away from you if you're hiking and like your dog could easily maul another dog and you're not, they're like 10 paces behind and you can't get there in time. So I'm going to, if it's all right, I'm going to go on a dog lifestyle training tangent. Yes, uh, go for so, it. So this is the niche of my training versus other people's training, if you will. I take my dogs with me absolutely everywhere I go. There is not a place that I go into that I do not have a dog. And I do not get any negativity anywhere I go. Mm-hmm. I, I take my dogs to the movie theater with me. I take them into every store I go into, every small business, because that dog needs to know how to act in every different situation. Because yeah. if they go into that place for the first time, they're going to be like, what the hell is this? What the hell is this? What the hell is this? But if they go into every single place that I go into, they're not going to give a shit about any of it. <laughs> like not, I saw this it's not, yesterday. It's not special. It's not special to go into a new place. They go into new places all the time. If And I take that same sort of mentality with me everywhere. And depending on the setting, off leash or on leash, I don't think that it's horrible for people's dogs to go on a hike with them, but it is ridiculous to go on a hike off leash and that be like the time that you're seeing how your dog is off leash. Like mm-hmm. you're, if your dog can do that sort of activity with you once a week and then goes to other places and associates different rules. Okay. When I'm indoors and on a leash, I have to stand on my side. When I'm outside in the wilderness, I can go 10, 20 paces above, but I have to come back every single time. Come back, yeah. And you have to rep those things and you have to make it to where it is normal and your dog loves you so much. And the, how you get that is play. If my dog associates happiness playing with listening to me, then there's no situation, zero situation that my dog will not mm-hmm. listen and come back to me. It Because if they're in a hyper endorphin crazy state, and when I put them in that state is when I ask things of them, then your dog will go, I have the most fun when I listen to you. And then that's what you do when you're, when people come to your house and your dog's freaking out and jump in and blah, blah, blah. If you can't control them and you have that powerless feeling to where you're like, ah, I wish I could control you, but I'm not going to grab you, pull you down. But like somebody's right here. So the way that you get a dog to listen to you in those, like, I'm so psycho excited right now. I can't do anything is being rules with play. Mm -hmm. So you take that and you go, okay, I'm going to play with you and I'm going to give you rules. I'm going to ask you this and I'm going to keep you super excited and playing and happy. And once you develop that, play with your dog, give them rules and structure and ask things of them while they're playing. When they get into that hyper mode, whether it's on a trail at a dog park, in the store, at your house, meeting someone for the first time, they're going to go, I know what to do when I'm in this setting. I listen to you and then I'm happy and I get what I want. And that is, that's the crux of my stuff. I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars going, buying the just for the online courses for train your own dog for $200. Uh, 
I've spent my money on the become a professional dog trainer, pay $5,000. Cause I was like, what are you telling one person that you're not telling the other? You're telling this person that they can make their dog perfect for $200. But in order to train dogs, I need to pay $5,000. This seems fishy to me, <laughs> but, but I went through the process. I went through the journey. I took it with no ego and I went through the whole thing and came up with my own. And honestly, I've spent, I spent thousands of dollars at one point teaching how to learning how to abuse dogs in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, and I know multiple businesses that make $300,000 a year abusing dogs, in my opinion, because they're not doing uh, certain techniques correctly because they were taught incorrectly and were told me to do it. So that's what I'm going to do. And they're not free thinking enough to go, but what is the actual cause and effect of the situation? And that's the biggest reason why I was like, you know what? I don't have 10 years of doing this um, under my belt, but I coached kids for eight years. I made world champions out of freaking eight-year-olds and I have the skills on coaching. I'm smart enough to figure these stuff out. And there are people that are actively taking dogs in, charging people $3,000 to take their dog in and traumatizing those dogs into submission. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I can make any sort of positive influence and get those dogs that would be in those situations out of those situations, then I need to take the chance and not care if people tell me all these negative things that they think about me and how I'm doing my stuff. I just need to put myself out there and find the people that are willing to, to listen and be more understanding because if you like all the people that are being demonized for going to the dog park, by dog trainers and rescues and stuff. They're just not trying to interact with those people. They have this dog. They don't know what to do. They're being told that their actions are bad, but they're not wanting to change those actions. They're not wanting to feel shame. The problem doesn't get solved. They, that dog gets worse. That dog gets put in the shelter because this person uh, didn't have the confidence to go and get shamed for their actions. And then that's a cycle that happens. So I see all, I see those cycles. I see people seeing the like all positive only treat training never do anything negative to your dog training i i have trained enough dogs to where that works for some dogs that absolutely doesn't work for some dogs so there's this big shame of people that do things with their dogs whether it's use tools don't use tools let them off leash in a hike don't let them off leash go to the dog park there's a lot of like The decisions that you're made are not going, okay, how do we make sure that you succeed in this situation? Mm Because that's what you want to do. It's a lot of shaming for making those decisions without an answer saying, just don't do the things that you want to do to make you happy. And then that person's like, I don't even fucking want my dog. then. Yeah. That's a a really, that's a really good point. And the thinking back on it, it's the really The thing is, if the dog's recall does not exist and the human and that dog are absolutely not connected and the dog's not listening at all, that's what grinds my gears. Like when I'm like, I have a dog with me that is reactive towards other dogs, but they also deserve to be on this hiking trail. And then the other dog comes up to them and the owners, oh, don't worry, they're friendly. And I'm like, yeah, but my dog isn't. No. A hundred percent. I've had, I've had people try and attack me because their dog ran up to my dog and I had to pick my dog up while my dog is trying to attack them because my personal dog is a aggressive pit bull. Those, I don't know if you, if you watch videos and stuff, but if you like watch things, a lot of trainers will be like aggressive, truly aggressive dogs don't actually exist. Or they're like one in 10,000 dogs are truly aggressive dogs, but I have one that is truly aggressive. I got her because I was like, I know you exist and I need to know how to ask someone, will you let this dog into your life? Will you live with this dog? These are the rules that this dog has to abide by. And I'm not willing to ask somebody to do something that I'm unwilling to do. It's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. So I got a dog that nine months old 
killed another dog. She's the most well-trained dog I have ever had. She has her own room in my house. I have six dogs in my house right now. She has her own room. She can play with certain dogs for 20 minutes at a time. I know all of her triggers. I know what settings that could set her off. And she listens to me perfectly. But if a random dog runs up at me in the park, she will go, I'm going to attack you. So I've been in those situations. I totally understand. But um, telling people, no, you're bad. Don't do it. Isn't the answer in that thing. Mm -hmm. It's, hey, you want to do this? These are all the skills you need to do it. You want to work together. You want to make sure that your dog is set up for success. That's how you take care of that situation. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to hike successfully without starting dog fights, then... Let's do this the right way. I am so guilty of mean mugging the shit out of people when they are out there hiking with their dog and their dog runs up to a dog that I have or my friend's dog and the owner is not in sight or the owner, especially Grads McGear, if the owner just doesn't care and it's like, oh, come on, like, and doesn't acknowledge anything, like, come on to the dog and the dog half listens. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about here. Those dogs that half listen, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for you and the dog and the other dog and the people involved. Attacks happen. So as Dylan's saying, if you want to do that, you know, I say that with grinded teeth, like, because he's he's much more adept at this than I am. He's right. I am wrong. I get it. But if you want to do that, just make sure you practice first in an environment that's safe for you and your dog. And you know 100% that dog will listen to you. And you are the fun thing to go back to. They have no reason not to. And everybody's safe. And then I don't have to meat bug you on the trail because your dog isn't listening to you. Win-win. Yeah. Yeah. And my dog is truly aggressive. I had to teach her that. I had to teach her that through play. I had to, I had to teach her that dogs are awesome playmates. Mm-hmm. And if you want to have more fun in these settings, then you can have more fun by associating yourself this way, blah, blah, blah. And she'll play with chihuahuas now at, at the dog park. But 22 minutes in, she will attack that dog if there's not constant movement because that's how her brain works. Is she's, okay, I'm done playing. Now it would be fun to try and eat you. And, oh, wow. So just and, like, I'm done with you. Let's get rid of you. <laughs> well, yeah, and, yeah, like uh, it's like a, it's an addiction for her. If she had never experienced mauling a dog to death before, she would not have that or like trying to kill a dog. Like she didn't have to kill a dog to get that. But like to fight to the death for mm-hmm. a game pit bull is heroin. She experienced it once and now she's an addict. She knows what she's supposed to do in those settings. She has triggers that'll trigger it instantly if they happen. I know it. She knows it. We manage her appropriately to make sure that she doesn't get her triggers and she doesn't go over 20 minutes in a setting with any dog. Mm. And she can live an absolutely amazing life. She can go into with to any setting with me. She's got the skills of a service animal because I worked with her. I found out her triggers and I made sure that she is never going to be set up for failure. And we had some freaking trial and error to get there. God, I can't even imagine. Yeah. But now she, that was the trade-off is I I got her saying, you're going to die. If I don't take you, Mm -hmm. I want to know what I need to ask of someone to take a dog like you in, because I know you exist. And that's her role in life is to teach me how to save more dogs that are like her getting killed because they know that her type of breed exists. Yeah. And showing other people that just because of her breed. And even if she is actually aggressive, there is still, she deserves happiness. She deserves to live. She deserves to live safely with other dogs, but she also deserves to be understood. And you gave her that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's amazing because she's the dog that like, I've never experienced like more Mm -hmm. love than her. She wants to make you happy as much as possible, which is what dog fighting people exploit is this dog wants to make me so happy 
that it wants to fight to the death if it thinks that's what I want. That's who she is. And I get that because I'm a freaking cage fighter. I hadn't thought of that parallel. Yeah, yeah, I totally understand where she's coming from. And it doesn't make her a bad person. It makes her, and she can't live the same life as any of my other dogs. She gets, she gets her own special life. And I had to learn that the hard way. And I don't want other people to learn that the hard way. I want to go, this is the cheat code. You have this dog. This is the cheat code. Please take it so that your dog can live a better life. Uh, Okay. Quick change of topic because you, so you use NFTs to sponsor training your rescues. So when I was prepping, chatting with you and Dylan, I'm going to be honest here. I'm 33 years old, but I consider myself the generation that this is a brand new thing and I don't understand it. It's like probably the cryptocurrency generation before us, but I was just like giggling at the memes and stuff I found about explaining (laughs) NFTs to like your grandparents. And here is my episodic reminder that sometimes I'm just a really bad young person. Well, young quotes around young, but this, this NFT thing really just sprung up overnight i guess like a lot of things do like dogecoin what but nfts or non-fungible tokens are a special kind of crypto asset in which each token is unique as opposed to fungible assets like bitcoin and dollar bills which are all worth exactly the same amount so every nft is unique which means it can be used to authenticate ownership of digital assets like artworks, recordings, virtual real estate, pets. Apparently, you'll be able to buy things in the metaverse that's coming out that the companies are coming together to create. So if you are interested in NFTs or you're interested in metaverse type things, I recommend looking into this, getting in now. Um, But also there might be, there's probably a dark side to this that I do not know about, like everything. So if I'm completely wrong and NFTs are the devil's work, please just go ahead and DM me. But uh, I mean, Dylan's using them for a really cool way to raise money for what he's doing. So that's a great side of it. But I'm sure that there's probably a dark side here. But, you know, I'm just simply Googling literally what is an NFT And this is what I got. So this is what I have to share with you. All right, let's get back to it. So can you explain (laughs) what you mean when you use NFTs to sponsor training rescue? To take one step back, I, when I was after 26, I was, I, my game plan was how do I figure out how to open up, how to open up my own rescue? And I started doing the research, the training, but step one was, okay, I need to figure out how to not live month to month because being a professional MMA fighter and teaching kids how to, you know, fight people is a month to month job that you don't make money doing it. People exploit passions. You'll never own a business by managing a business, especially in the same, in the same genre are kind of things that I learned in my early twenties. So when I was 26, I was like, okay, I need to prepare how to make real money and be an adult. So I opened up my own locksmithing business and I successfully ran that for a few years And when the 2020 pandemic hit, I went from making good money to where I was on track to open up my own shelter, buy my own property, do everything the traditional way. Mm Because essentially you need property to own, to have dogs on your property because nobody wants to allow you to have 12 dogs on their property. So I was on route and my business started struggling when the pandemic hit because nobody was going out and getting themselves locked out of cars if they're staying at home. And It was at the same time that the Pokemon boom happened. Last winter, Pokemon cards went from being like worth a really expensive card would be $5,000. That same card went to $50,000. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, So Pokemon cards, everybody, like little kids can't get Pokemon cards anymore because all the adults buy them and then sell them on the internet for profit. Damn it. Yeah, 100% ruining the fun. Um, Now for rat, now for ruin, and the red gold. But I saw this as an opportunity. I was like, okay, I understand Pokemon. I grew up in the 90s. I paid attention to Pokemon. I saw this coming. I didn't, I was living month to month. So I didn't have the, you know, wherewithal to buy up Pokemon cards knowing that this was going to happen, unfortunately. But I went, okay, I have money now and this is happening. And I 
am educated about this thing. So I went out and I bought every single person's cards that they had held that I could find that they had held since they were little kids because the Pokemon boom happened and everybody was like, this is the time to sell my freaking Pokemon cards. So everybody went on the internet and was like, okay, I'm going to sell my old Pokemon cards to you. And I found all the ones that I thought were worth buying bought them all. And then I went to Japan. Uh, I didn't physically go to Japan. I went to Japan websites and I bought all of the new, <laughs> all of the new Jap Japanese Pokemon cards that I could. And I invested $13,000 into buying Pokemon cards and then reselling them on the internet. And I made $40,000 off that $13,000 investment. And that's what, you know, kept me to where my locksmithing business needed to be to be successful because mm -hmm. my goal was to show that my locksmithing business was successful for a few years, get a loan, buy property. So NFTs I saw as just that. It's just uh, it's just a digital version, extended version of buying a Pokemon card and reselling it sort of thing. And so that's how I view it. It's, it's a collector's item. And if you can convince people, just like you can convince people that this piece of cardboard is worth freaking hundreds of dollars, you, if you can tell people why this NFT is valuable and then they go, okay, that's worth buying to me because they're hoping that they're going to be able to resell it in the future or they're going to be a part of a community that makes them feel good about themselves. Those are the two things that a, that a yeah. NFT collection provides. I'm a part of this community and they're and in the digital history books. That's what the crypto, uh, that's what the blockchain is. So NFTs are on a blockchain that is essentially, we don't have to write things down on paper to keep the, to keep history. Now that now there's a independent server that has no government interference that is now a history book and everything that happens on the internet through it will be forever thing. So you can say, okay, I was a part of the, this original community that saved a thousand dogs. So my NFT is called dog souls. If you purchase a picture of um, an NFT of a dog that has, that's a part of this collection has a rarity value and stuff, just like a collector's item, then I will take that money and I will train, rehabilitate, rehome one dog. So I'm going to sell a thousand. And my goal, my life goal is to train 1000 dogs. If I, the average cost of that is about 1500. I'm hoping to sell these, this NFT collection for an average of uh, 250, 300 to get initial investment and then promote myself to where I have enough people that are paying $4 a month just for my cause to where 5,000 people pay $4,000 a month. I can save eight dogs a month sort of thing. Wow, and wow. Okay. that's my structure. And the NFTs is the like startup, the, the initial launching pad that I'm trying to do, because if there's enough people that go, yeah, it makes total sense that you would want to train the dog in order to easily rehome it because nobody wants an untrained dog. And if I'm buying a one-year-old dog, I don't, if I'm getting a one-year-old dog, I don't want it to be a negative impact on my life. I don't want a one-year-old puppy that's going to destroy my house and eat my things. I want a dog that's going to make my life better. I'm only going to have positive feelings for it. So I'm going to ask them of things and they're going to do it. So yeah, that totally makes total sense. So yeah. Let's train these dogs and get them homes. I will put, if you have an expendable income, you have you have access to this. I just want to tell people and give people the skills that they need to succeed. I don't want them to have this paywall and this thing. I just want to be like, oh, I'm going to put everything out there. Please help me train and rescue these dogs. And that's what I've morphed into over the next few months of this. And I'm going to launch a, uh, in at the beginning of February, I'm going to launch a Kickstarter and I'm going to try and sell these 1000 NFTs. Each NFT represents a dog being trained, rescued, and rehabilitated. And I'm really hoping that it's successful and that people go, you know what, this is gonna, this is something that's great. This is something that could be a part of history and they buy it. And I really hope that a thousand different people buy this thing and people see that people are buying these and that there's things. And then the crypto people are like, this is, this is one of those special ones where there's never been a fundraiser to save a thousand dogs before. This is a part of cryptocurrency history. This cryptocurrency thing successfully saved and rescued a thousand dogs. I'll buy one of those to be a part of history. And I hope that person that initially bought my thing for $250 makes another $200 on it. And cause somebody decided to buy it for $450. Cause there's NFTs that are going yeah. for a million dollars right now. Huh. And the only thing that changes it is 
perception. There's, it's there's wild. peace. Yeah, it's wild. And there's ones that are going for millions of dollars. And I hope that somebody's going, you know what? I'm going to gamble on this and I'm going to gamble on this one because it, it's for the, it's for a it's good for cause. Such a good cause. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's so, such a unique way to use NFTs. That's yeah, just amazing. I, I haven't seen anybody do it yet. There's a, that's how I, I work. I mean, me saying I, I haven't seen it, it's yeah. not, it, it means nothing because I yeah. don't know what it is. But now this gives me a much better idea. <laughs> yeah. And that's, oh God, that's an amazing idea. Why don't I just go, hey, support this thing. If everybody supports me for $4 a month, then none of you guys are going to give a shit about it. You're not going to feel any more poor, but I'm going to save eight dogs a month. I freaking promise. I'm going to put it on the internet. I'm going to show you that I'm going to save eight dollars. I'm going to save eight dogs a month. We're going to consistently go. You're going to see these dogs. I'm going to tell you their story. We're going to find them a home. You're going to feel good about yourself. I'm going to feel good about yourself. And when you come to me with your dog issues, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to say, this is what you need to do. And if you don't do it in a week, I'm not going to be like, you're a bad person, but this is important. This is a life. We need to do this. These are the answers. If you're unwilling to do this, the options, if you're unwilling to do that, then find a local professional to do it. Because if you don't have t- the time for it, that's why you pay a professional. Yeah. And you don't have disservice to the dog. Yeah. And it's 80 to hundred hours of work and yeah. then, and then it's consistency of creating the lifestyle that you want to live with your dog and letting your dog live that lifestyle. You listed out a bunch of your social media. And I do know that rough world training is the Instagram. Is it all rough world training? It's rough world training on Instagram. And then it's rough world on uh TikTok, rough world training on Facebook and then YouTube. It's rough world training. Perfect. That's awesome. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you would like to talk about? We are half hour past, I said, I would take your time. So I do want oh, to like be I mean, very mindful I'm, of your time. Oh, I'm super stoked. So uh, more stuff about what I do is I felt bad about the whole taking stuff from children, taking Pokemon cards from children to, to make my money. So I saw so that transformed into a um, Pokemon vending machine business where I sell Japanese based Pokemon cards in places at an affordable rate. The goal is so that kids can afford to get collectible cards, rare cards and Japanese packs to where I find cards that I would be stoked to get that could actually develop a collection. It's for collectors. It's not for kids that want to play the game, but can actually develop a collection. So I find cards that are older than 2013 and I sell them at an affordable rate to these kids. And hundred percent of that proceeds also goes towards my dog training this is how the business aspect of it goes to I have a Pokemon based, I have the NFTs, and then I have the not in It's not a Patreon, but it's the same model of a Patreon to where if you want to support me on a monthly basis, which is really the foundation of being able to do everything, then support me on my website. It's $4 a month, $8 a month, $15 a month. And in return, whether you pay me or not, I'm going to support the community on all of my social media as much as possible. I'm going to show, I'm going to tell the story of these dogs because telling the story of these dogs is going to get them adopted and it's going to get people wanting to support them. Mm-hmm. And in that vein of the NFT on your Instagram, I see Luna was the first spot of your dog soul collection. Yeah. So who's I, Luna? Luna ended up being my first rescue that we took in at two weeks ago two weeks ago now. She's beautiful. Yeah. And Luna is amazing. Maybe three weeks ago now. Luna's amazing. Everybody loved her. She has no anxiety anymore. I just had to teach her like the first four days. She was absolutely terrified of me, but we took it slow. We went with her and now she goes with me everywhere I go. Looks like love at first sight to me. Dylan, thank you so much for your time and all of your immense wisdom. I learned a lot. I thought that I knew dogs pretty well, but honestly, like even the little bits of you have to adapt your training to what the dog itself needs. Cause I always was like only positive reinforcement, only correcting with treats, never put them in. You you are the dominant mode, but Mm -hmm. it's just, it depends on what the dog needs. That's amazing. And never, that part's true. Never put your dog in a dominant. Never dominant. Okay. But you need to know we're dogs live in the moment and dogs want to play all of the time. I am the master of the play. I am the master of the setting. Hey, I'm in charge right now. You're my buddy. You're with me. We're partners, but I'm Batman. You're Robin. 
<laughs> and when your dog understands that he's okay, boss, let's do it. And they're stoked about it. And they're going to listen yeah. to you in any setting. So don't dominate your dog because now you're bringing fear into the equation and you don't want your dog fearful of you or anything. You listen to me and we're buddies. We're going to live life together, but you got to listen to me. And they're so smart. They want to please. They are yeah. so smart. 100 hours and have a plan. Know what to do. Have a plan. And that's what I do is, hey, why support me? Because I'm going to give you the plan and I'm going to let you know what you need to do because you can train your dog. But I charge $2,500 to train my dog. And if you want to know how to train dogs, I'm going to charge you $300. We just need a plan, structure, and accountability. And that's what I'm offering to the world. And in return, I would like them to help me save a thousand dogs. Love it. Okay. We'll make sure that is front and center here. <laughs> that's, but that's the tagline. <laughs> that is the tagline. That is the tagline. Uh, you made it. That's great. Thank you so much, Dylan. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, you giving me this opportunity. Hi again, and welcome to the end of the episode. That was loaded with inspiration and it was so amazing being able to talk to Dylan and he was so vulnerable talking about how he grew up, but the amazing story of him turning that abandonment that he faced as a kid into something so powerful to help all of these abandoned dogs so that they are no longer continuously abandoned is incredible and it's powerful and you can help in his goal too to save 1,000 dogs and get in on the NFT. I think that this will be my first NFT. Is that how you say that? It'll be my first NFT I purchase if I can figure it out. Obviously, I'm struggling, but I will put on social when Dylan's Kickstarter starts in February, so you can support him there if you are interested. It's a really cool introduction to NFTs, as well as giving to a good cause. And if you're already into NFTs, it's a really cool philanthropic approach to it, if you will. And you can help him on his journey to save 1,000 dogs, and you too can save 1,000 dogs and say that you were a part of that amazing journey. Go follow, follow, follow Dylan to see his journey there. And I will also link all of my socials and how to contact me in the show notes. Please rate and subscribe if you are enjoying this podcast and tell a friend if you are, especially if you're enjoying this podcast, tell a friend, tell anybody. I would be so grateful. The show is growing. It's gaining traction. I'm having a blast and it's really exciting being able to connect with you guys every week with these incredible people that I wouldn't have been able to meet otherwise and can bring them to life with you and we can just celebrate these incredible people doing amazing things in their life every day. And hopefully it's encouraging you too to get out there and do something you didn't think that you could before you listen to this podcast. Okay, so trivia. NFT, this is going to blow your mind. It blew my mind. Guess how long it's been around. NFT has been around since 2014. 2014, it's been around. Like, who knew? How does this stuff just lurk in the depths of the internet and just emerge years later? It's fucking nuts. Send his beloved pile back to the depths. The person who created the first NFT, his name is Kevin McCoy. He created it on May 3rd of 2014. Kevin McCoy is a digital artist, and he minted the first known NFT named Quantum. And Quantum is a pixelated octagon filled with different shapes that pulse in a quite hypnotic way. Look it up, it's odd. But that's where it all came from. And we can all get involved now and save dogs. Like, what? how, how much better could it get? But okay, enough of your time now. Bye-bye, see you next Thursday.